We're in a series called Origins, and we're going chapter by chapter through Genesis, which uh, for me has been super fun. And we're already to chapter eight, which knowing me, that's actually moving along at a pretty good clip. So here we go. Uh, uh, Genesis chapter eight, starting in verse 18. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one, out, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of the, of the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. And as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Well, uh, you're witnessing history, folks. For the first and hopefully last time, I'm ripping off the title of my sermon from a movie. Uh, Noah, and this is the subtitle. Is this the end of the world, dot, 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 or is it just the beginning? Now, I know some of you are thinking to yourself, come on, man, we can do a lot better than cheesy references to movies from 15 years ago. And usually you're right about that, but today, uh, this is actually kind of spot on. I give them a lot of credit for this. Um, I, I haven't even seen that movie, by the way. I just liked the subtitle. So in preparation for the message, I did a little bit of research and I read a Christian review of article uh, of, of the movie. And what was so funny to me is that they were, the author of the article was like shocked that they had co-opted the biblical storyline and changed the message of Genesis 6. It's funny to me that anyone's surprised that people from Hollywood are going to take creative liberties with a Bible story. I feel like that's just kind of like a given. Like being, that's like being surprised that somebody from Bend drives a Subaru. It's just, it's just what we do. Like if you look at any parking lot in Bend right now, it's Subaru, Subaru, Tacoma, Subaru, Subaru, Sprinter van, Subaru. It's just like Sprinters and, and Subarus all over the place. So people who make movies are going to take the story about the flood and they're going to turn it into a story about climate change. That's just what they're going to do. However, the subtitle, This is the End it's actually just the beginning. That is truly spot on. Like they must have had an Old Testament scholar as a consultant or something because that is the story of Noah in a sentence, which is what we're gonna find as we go along today. So it's easy to see why they turned this thing into a movie. It's epic, it's got apocalypse, it's got a hero, it's got like a floating zoo, all the stuff, right? Just add the guy from Gladiator and you've got an instant hit. But it's also kind of part of the problem because the story of the flood is so familiar, like in Christian circles alone, we already uh, have a hard time like letting the true message of the text speak to our hearts. Add to that, once a Bible story like this, with this amount of complexity and nuance hits the mainstream, we can sort of become lost 
in all of the contemporary interpretations and readings of it. So our job for today is to recover the true meaning of the flood story and then to be transformed by its message. And what we're gonna find is that it's a story about God's love for the world. It's about his passion to preserve its goodness and its beauty. And it's also a challenge for us to live blameless like Noah and to call upon the name of the Lord. Now on that note, one quick disclaimer. Uh, In the last couple hundred years, much like the first two chapters of Genesis, really well-meaning people have tried to reconstruct the events of the flood with scientific evidence and explanation. And this is just how we as modern readers process this kind of literature. It's not our fault, it's just kind of how we are. But many people are super passionate about connecting the dots between Genesis 6 through 9 with modern scientific disciplines like hydrology and geology and all of that. For example, um, maybe some of you are familiar, there's an actual museum in Kentucky that is devoted to uh, proving a worldwide flood through science. And in that view, uh, Genesis 6 through 9 are being argued from as a scientific text, like it's trying to tell us about the age of rocks and things like that. Now, I know where they're coming from. They want to champion the authority of Scripture, and I'm definitely on board with that. I want to champion the authority of Scripture Two, it's authoritative, it's, it's true, no question. But reading Genesis to answer our science questions is actually undermining the message, not actually championing the message of the text. Now, I, I don't know how to do good science. Last time I picked up a science book was in 2006, right? So it's been a minute. But I do know that's not how we actually do good hermeneutics, right? To do good hermene- hermeneutics, we have to remember that Genesis is a ancient text, and Genesis 1 through 11 is written from an ancient literary genre called primeval history, and it's not trying to answer our 21st century science questions. It was set in stone thousands of years before these science questions even existed. So this is an error in hermeneutics that scholars call concordism, where we read into the biblical text something that's not actually there, that we desperately want to be there because of our own set of cultural presuppositions that the ancient world just did not have. Now for many of you, this is not an issue, you don't really care about it, but for some of you, it really, really matters uh, because it helps us to reconstruct uh, our faith to, to actually read this scripture properly. So in reality, Genesis 1 through 11 is much, much more like poetry than it is like a science book. And so we need to read it as such, literarily, like as the text is, is coming to us. And we also need to read it theologically. So the message, it has way more to do with how to trust in the Lord during chaotic times and how God handles violence and how God handles injustice. It has a lot to do with how God works through all kinds of horrifying evil to bring redemption and salvation, way more than it is interested in giving us clues on how old the rocks we find should be. So Dr. Tim Mackey, who a lot of us know and respect, he, he once said this, uh, reading the early chapters of Genesis as a science text is like trying to read Harry Potter to learn magic. It's just not what it's for, which I love that. Um, that got a laugh at the first gathering. Maybe I've lost some of you already. But concordism is just an, is just a, 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 an example in, in missing the point. 
So um, if, you're, if you're looking for, I know many of you are like, okay, dude, like, move on to the next point, like, get past this, which I'm going to. But uh, if you're at all interested in studying this more deeply, like getting a scholar's perspective on a how to read a genre called primeval history, like the early chapters of Genesis, then I highly recommend you read the books of Dr. John Walton. He's got a whole series of books called The Lost World of Genesis, and it's extremely helpful and really good in terms of actually recovering the true meaning of the text. So instead of reconstructing the event from the flood scientifically, what we're going to do is focus on what the literature is actually trying to tell us, which is all about the language and the context in, this, in which the story is fitting inside. So to do that, we need to pay close attention to the, the words themselves, the language itself, and its context. So we're picking the story up in chapter 6, verse 11, where we see creation spiraling downward into a world of chaos and disorder. And this is something that we've seen all along since chapter 3. Genesis 6, 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So we have essentially what this is telling us is that we've come a long way from our peaceful origins in the Garden of Eden. And this is the cautionary tale of the story of Genesis. When humans reject God's good design and instead set out to define good and evil for our own, we'll handle it from here. We don't want your input. We want to uh, live the way that we want to live. Then it quickly falls from shalom and delight into violence and corruption. For example, last week we unfolded the very tragic story of how brutal the world has gotten outside of Eden. Within a generation of Adam and Eve, brothers are killing each other and women are being exploited and treated like property instead of being cherished and honored by their husbands as co-heirs in the family of God, as partners and fellow Imago Dei. So the biblical storyline is highlighting something that we honestly hate to admit and face ourselves, that the beauty and sacred partnership that God designed for humans, men and women, in the Garden of Eden has been brutalized by sin. So uh, here in several places in Genesis 6, it says that the earth is filled with violence. So filled with violence, let's decode that for the ancient world. What does that actually mean? What that actually means is that the gender uh, of people who have more muscle mass and more muscle density are physically dominating the opposite sex to gratify their base desires. It is a horrible evil. And the statistics uh, on sexual abuse in the Western world show that for all of our progress and all of our sophistication, the world is still just as brutal or nearly just as brutal. According to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, approximately one in three women and one in six men in the United States have experienced sexual violence of some kind during their lifetime. And it's estimated that only about 20% of female victims and only 10% of male victims actually report their sexual assault to anyone. So just think about that for a moment. It is no wonder that so many in our world today and many in this room are dealing with deep emotional trauma like PTSD and trust issues with the people that they love and self-esteem and body image issues and sexual dysfunction and self-destructive behaviors and re-victimization and underachievement in their careers and life goals and social isolation and mental health 
disorders, and it just goes on and on and on. In our bodies and in our psyche, we carry the results of sin, and we pass them on to the next generation because sin has been done to us, and then we're doing sin or we're committing sin against others. Pete Scazzaro writes about what he calls clean and dirty pain. Clean pain is pain that we experience at no fault of our own. That's the victim of sexual abuse, let's say. But dirty pain is the pain that we experience because of our own corrupt choices, the choices that we've made. And the reality is that the the Bible is trying to tell the story that humans can't actually survive in a world where God downplays the effects of sin. We can't live in a world where God shrugs his shoulders at our pain. The Bible is saying, no, we we need to actually address it. Now, here's the, the lament of our day. We used to have freedom. We used to have the ability to harmonize with God and all of his holiness. But the lament of the Bible, the lament of our generation is that things have gotten out of our control. And now we're enslaved. So we actually need and we're dependent on a God who is wise and who is filled with zeal for what is right and what is just. We need a God who is willing to do whatever is necessary to save us from ourselves and to bring redemption. And the flood is telling the story of that God who is wise and won't give up on the project of redemption and bringing wholeness back to the world. Now notice God's emotions in, all of, in, in response to all of this evil. Here's what we find in Genesis 6-6, that God is sad. He's sad, and he's grieved in his heart. Now, um, check out uh, verse 6-6 says that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, when a lot of modern people think about the flood, we often uh, think of like an angry God in judgment or something like that. Now, the flood is certainly judgment. There's no two ways about it. But according to the scriptures, he's not reacting with impulsive violence or exploding in anger. That's not what God is like. In fact, 1 Peter 3.20 says explicitly, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So despite all of the rapid spread of evil, God is patiently waiting, and his primary emotion is not anger or wrath. His primary emotion towards evil is sadness and even regret. And I think this is a super helpful distinction that we need to make because we see in the story of the scriptures God's use of force against unrepentant groups of people who are continuing in harmful disobedience. And at a point, God says, Enough evil is enough. And I've talked to so many people who are hung up on God's judgment. And I honestly, I get why. I understand it. Why some people are trying to distance themselves from the scriptures that talk about God bringing judgment. And there's actually a whole vein of Christian scholarship right now that's trying to distance the God that we know as Jesus from some of these Old Testament texts where God is bringing judgment. But I don't think there's any need for that. In fact, I think it's a big mistake. The Bible is quite clear that first of all, God is extremely patient and he's extremely forgiving. And the people in the world of Genesis 6 had every opportunity to turn back to God and years to do so, but they've refused to do it and they continued down a dangerous road, a dangerous path of their own choosing and of their own making. So now we, we learn all kinds of things about, well, what is God going to do in response to all that evil? Exodus 34 depicts God as thousands of times more loving than punishing. 
thousands of times more loving than punishing. I love that picture of him. So when he does judge wickedness and sin, which he does promise to do in Exodus 34, he's doing it out of love for the victims. As a wise judge is stepping in on behalf of the victim to uh, bring consequence for evil. And you could even argue that God is loving the abusers. He's keeping those of us who are guilty of evil from committing more acts of evil that harm ourselves and that harm the people around us. So the conclusion to the biblical uh, idea around judgment is that we need God. We need God to make wise judgments. We can't actually make the wise judgments on our own. So many scriptures, like in Job and Isaiah, for example, they challenge humans who would question God's judgment and say, hey, who are you, oh man, to judge God or to advise God or to be his counselor? In fact, I would, I would say that this is the problem of evil in the first place. This is the temptation in the first place. It's humans who are taking God's place to determine what is right and good and true on their own apart from him. They're, they're actually judging God and they're saying, you know what, I'd be better off. I'd be, it'd be better for me to make those judgments. And he's the one who holds the water in the, 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 the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, as it says in Isaiah 40. He's the one who measures the stars with the span of his hand. He calls them each by name and by his power, not one of them is missing. He is the one who has true wisdom to bring godly and wise judgment. And when he does that, and he sometimes does even in our lives as well, I think what we need, instead of challenging his judgment, I think what we need is a holy submission to his judgment. And by that I mean this, like an actual prayer of thanksgiving. God, thank you for knowing when enough evil is enough. God, thank you for deciding to act in what is right and just. Thank you, God. I know your first choice is not to punish evil. I know you would rather celebrate our obedience to you, but since evil has persisted, we submit to what you have decided. I think this is the heart of Noah. I think this is the heart of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Is to actually say there are ju certain judgments that I could not make and it's good that God is in that position and he's making them. And notice what God does with his sadness and his grief. He decides to act uh, by appointing a guy named Noah and then cleansing the world of evil through the flood. It's important to see the flood as God's cleansing. Check out uh, Genesis 6, 13. It says, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And I'm surely going to destroy both, both them and the earth. So make yourself uh, an ark of cypress wood, wood and make rooms in it and coat it with pitch on the inside and out. And then there's a long description of what the ark is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to be constructed. And then he says this in verse 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark and your sons and your, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So we're gonna to get to Noah here in a second, but notice what the flood is for. It's important to notice what it's for, what's not for. It's for cleansing and purifying the earth. It's not the end, it's actually just the beginning. Thank you, Russell Crowe and company, right? Now God's cleansing from a biblical perspective, it's actually a really beautiful thing when we don't challenge it, but we, when we embrace it like Noah was able to embrace. 
I remember uh, several years ago, my brother and sister-in-law, they were looking for Mountain View property in Tumalo, which who wouldn't love that, right? It sounds amazing. And uh, here's the thing, though. He's a military man, and they had a reasonable but kind of, you know, modest budget for Mountain View prices. And that was like back in 2016 or something like that. Imagine if we were talking Mountain View homes right now. Those of you who bought in 2012 were like happy for you. Not resentful or envious, just happy. Oh my gosh, the real estate market here is nuts right now. Anyways, all that to say, everything that came on the market for my brother and sister-in-law, it was just like a little bit out of reach until one day on Redfin, five acres in Tumalo with possible second story mountain views hit the market in their budget. So immediately what they decide to do is to schedule a showing. And when they drive up to the property, it becomes immediately clear why it's in budget. So the reason why it's in budget is there have been um, a bunch of squatters living on the property for years, and they've turned the land into just a complete garbage dump, like their own personal garbage dump. And to make matters worse, the people living on the property were like chasing off anyone who had scheduled a showing and had wanted to like maybe purchase the house. So it's fair to say this place was not showing that well. And so as a result, um, this property was listed for less than what bare land would have been priced at at the time. Now, because my in-laws, they had a vision for it, and because they weren't afraid of the challenge, they decided to, to, even though all of that was going on, to put in an offer, and their offer got accepted. And now, when I say this place was a dump, I mean like 30 to 40 trailer loads, like massive trailer loads of just complete garbage. And that's not to mention that there were also like rat-infested and molded out trailers and manufactured homes that they had to personally demolish and remove themselves. Like months and months of work before they could even get it back to bare land to rebuild. And I helped for like two hours one day. <laughs> it was like a ceremonial show of support. You know like when a CEO like takes the golden shovel and does like one little scoop? It was basically that's what I did. But I remember being on the site that day and just being overwhelmed by the mess of it all. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is exactly what God's cleansing work is actually like. This is what God does. This is how he purifies us. He's taking all of this disorder. He's taking all of this chaos. He's taking all of this gross mess, the rusty nails and the smelly materials that will make you sick and diseased. And he does all of the difficult, uh, backbreaking work of cleansing and purifying the land. So why does God do this? God does this because he sees what others can't see. He sees what he originally created with good intention and good design. And underneath all of that mess and all of that garbage, there's still potential for that goodness to be cultivated and brought into the world. And the scriptures say that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So he gave humans the responsibility to take care of and rule over the earth. Remember that from chapter 2. But at a certain point, he says, enough is enough. Since you're creating disorder and chaos and evil, I'm going to be the one to step in, and I'm going to cleanse this place myself. And that's exactly what God does. Now, when the squatters were on this property, um, they had no respect for the beauty of the land or for the potential of the property. But once my brother and sister-in-law owned it, they bought it. Man, they were invested. They were dedicated. They were committed uh, to cleansing it and to making the property really beautiful again. And that's exactly what they did. They hired a landscape architect and they built this beautiful modern farmhouse with massive windows to take full advantage of the mountain views. And now, where there used to be like a rat-infested trailer, now there's a garden and a chicken coop 
and a hot tub. Like, that's redemption right there. They fixed it. And now when I roll up to the property, I'm like, yes, like this is what the land is supposed to be. It's supposed to be for this. It's beautiful. So the point is that God has a vision for the future. He has a vision for the future of our world that he created. And originally he made it good and beautiful. And he knows that that potential is still there. And he's deeply invested. He's deeply committed to cleansing it, to purifying it for the sake of our future. And so in order to do that, he uses this guy named Noah. So Noah... Uh, his name in Hebrew means rest. Don't think lazy. Think that Noah might actually reverse the violence and the toil that came at the result of the fall and usher in God's rest. Day seven, Sabbath delight. That's what we're talking about here. Also notice that he's blameless and he finds favor with God. And if you're here last week, you may remember he comes from the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, who's calling on the name of the Lord. So in other words, in a world that's largely going their own way, And worshiping the God of self, Noah says, no, I'm worshiping Yahweh and I'm obeying God. So when we read that word blameless, we shouldn't hear the English word perfect necessarily. When we hear the word blameless, that Noah's blameless, we should hear that Noah is trusting in the Lord and he is walking faithfully with God. Uh, Look quickly at Hebrews 11, 7. It says this, by faith Noah when warned about things not yet seen, in a holy fear, built an ark to save his family. What was that a result of? That was a result of his faith. By faith, he condemned the world, became heir of the righteousness that is keeping with faith. So the incredible uh, wisdom and example of a guy like Noah is his trust in God and his trust in God's faithfulness. When no one else is able to see it or is paying attention, Noah is faithful. He's the outsider. Now we see him as the hero. Now we see him as the giant of the faith. But in his day, in his generation, amongst his neighbors, he was an outsider. He was going upstream to his culture. And that's because he had a holy fear of God that exceeded his desire to please men. His holy fear of God exceeded his desire to please men. And uh, if we were to nuance the whole story out, which we don't have time for, we'll see that Noah's neighbors are convinced that Noah's life is just a delusional fool's errand, that he's spending his entire, de- dec- like truly decades of his life and all the resources of his life just building a boat in the desert where there's no rain. So like, could you think of something more foolish than that is his uh, neighbor's point of view. And Noah, surprisingly, is totally okay with that reputation because he believes that the word of the Lord or excuse me, he believes the word of the Lord, and he's interested in obeying the Lord. That is his primary deal. Now, to me, this is interesting, because I believe that there's this like on-again, off-again trend in evangelical Christianity with being relevant. Like There's a whole magazine and all kinds of conferences or whatever about making the church relevant again. Now, the early church clearly had a very good reputation for their charity and love for the poor and all of that. And by the way, I certainly believe that we should be clear on how the gospel of Jesus is good news to all of our neighbors, no question about it. And I don't think that we should be like needlessly weird or off-putting, which I know that some Christians definitely are in that camp. But uh, 1 Corinthians says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe. And so we need to accept that in our day and age, to be faithful to Jesus will involve breaking company with the majority. 
It will involve breaking company with darkness and evil. It will often mean we are in the minority position. And what we need is a holy fear of the Lord that exceeds our desire to please people. A fear of the Lord that exceeds our desire to please people. This is crucial. This is the example of Noah, and we need to have that type of holy confidence that you guys might say that this is foolish, but I am obeying and I am following the instructions of my God, and frankly, that trumps your opinion of me. And that's an important part of being a follower of Jesus in our time. So the other part of Noah's wisdom is his preparation. He's thorough, and he's following God's instructions to a T. So that when that day comes, he's able to embrace and even welcome God's judgment. When the rains start falling, Noah is prepared. He's able to welcome and even embrace God's judgment. So listening and obeying the Lord, I think it is obviously it's going to be upstream to our culture, but it comes with the blessing of deep peace. So something that's upstream to our culture may still come with the blessing of deep peace because when Jesus returns, we don't have anything to hide. We don't have anything to be ashamed of. We are ready for Jesus to come back. We are ready for the day of judgment because we are following faithfully after him. And again, I think that we have placed a lot of emphasis on being seen in a certain way by by the outside culture. I think we should be more concerned with how God sees our actions and how God sees our heart. So, we want to be ready for the return of Jesus. We want to be ready for the day of judgment. And we can, we can. We can be ready, like Noah, by following the Lord's example. So in my notes, I have in parentheses here, insert Sunday school flood narrative here. <laughs> uh, because, um, yeah, there's just so much more to the story that we haven't talked about. By the way, I grew up in the, in the 1990s during the age of the flannel graph. You guys remember the flannel graph? Yeah, there's a few of us here in the room. If you're not old, like me, uh, a flannel graph is something that they used to do in Sunday school with making these like flannel cartoon characters that represented the biblical stories, like the flood, and then as the Sunday school teacher was teaching the story, they would put the felt characters on the felt board. It was super riveting, super, super awesome. Actually, you know what, saying it out loud, I can vividly remember being in kindergarten and learning the story of the flood and seeing the animals coming out of the ark two by two, so I'm not going to knock it. Now we have cartoons in HD, but flannel graph works too. It's, uh, it's all right. So um, after the ark is built, Noah, his three sons, their families, um, they bore, and all the, all the animals, they board the ark, and the rain begins to fall. And then in addition to the rains falling, there's also the aqueducts deep within the earth that are opening up and the earth just floods. For 40 days, 40 nights, it rains nonstop. By the way, I'm restraining myself from doing all kinds of like talk about like numerology and other things that I wish we could talk about, but for the sake of time, I'm cutting you all a break. Um, But if you want more of the details of the story, they can all be found in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And uh, I pointed out earlier that we need to emphasize the language and the context of the story. Now, there was another time in Genesis where the earth was covered in water. You guys remember when that was? It was in the very beginning, Genesis 1, verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we're already beginning to see a biblical pattern. Biblical patterns are going to become really important how we read Genesis and honestly how we read the entire Bible. In the beginning, there's these dark, chaotic waters that represent a non-ordered existence, what we're going to call a non-ordered creation. And then in, in chapters 1, 
verse three through the end of chapter two, God is bringing order. He, he, he arranges all the materials of earth in order to bring order and structure and rhythm to the cosmos. And then he's, of course, preparing the earth for humans to thrive in the Garden of Eden. Then chapter three through six, this is the part that we know all too well. Humans rebel and send the earth back into chaos and back into disorder. So in Genesis six through eight, God cleanses the earth through the flood and he brings it back to a place of non-order. So that finally in Genesis 9, God reorders creation with Noah and his family. Now I understand that there's a lot here, but this is a very important biblical pattern that we're going to see with God's judgment and redemption. God deals with the disorder by purifying things back to a place of non-order so that he can reorder everything the way that he always wanted it to be from the very beginning in covenant love with his faithful people. So this is what the message of the story is actually trying to tell us. How does God actually deal with evil? How does God deal with chaos and destruction and corruption? How does God do it? Well, he judges it while maintaining his promise to recreate and bless. So he's, I think he's doing a lot of the same kind of work today. For example, I think that COVID was like a version of the flood for our generation. Now, I'm not saying that I believe or I have discernment or wisdom or anything like that, that COVID was judgment from God. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it was a profound cultural disruption that affected almost every area of our daily lives that I believe God used in order to cleanse and purify his people. So before COVID, back before we ever planted Riverbend, I, I, I remember feeling like this lack of focus and this lack of spiritual hunger from within the church of Bend. It's actually one of the reasons why we planted here. There was like a malaise of spiritual apathy and mediocrity. And, uh, and, and again, we were driven by God to, to be a part of seeing that change here in Central Oregon. And through COVID, that whole feeling or that sense, it actually got a lot worse before it got better. Like I saw the church fighting and politicizing and getting things off of message and doing church on demand from a couch or something like that, which I think just highlights a fundamental dysfunction in the resolve of our hearts to follow after God in the church. But what emerged out of that, like through the waters of judgment, was a smaller but purified and more focused core of believers who want to be resilient in a secular age, who want to worship and praise Jesus alone. And I'm not just talking about us here at Riverbend, I'm talking about many other churches across Bend, like Journey and Westside and Eastmont and Antioch, all these really great places that are focused and vibrant and awake um, in, in the sense of wanting to see God's kingdom come here in Central Oregon as in heaven. And I believe that there's much more of that, that the Lord wants to do. And COVID was a way that God got our attention and how God purified and cleansed us. That's disorder to non-order to reorder. God did it through the flood. He does it through the corporate ways that I just mentioned, like in a generation or in a region. But I think we can also look for this same pattern of how God brings maturity in his discipline of us as individuals. So God disciplines us. Uh, Hebrews 13 says that he disciplines those that he loves. So as a good dad disciplines his kids, we should expect that as children of God. And so as we experience God's, uh, God's um, discipline, we like feel the consequences of our sin. You feel God's correction, definitely. But what you're also doing, if you're paying attention, like Noah was, the goal of God's discipline is to actually wash away and purify the disordered love that's in our hearts. 
the misplaced priorities, the places of your life where the cult of self still has a hold on you. And in God's discipline, what he's doing is he is cleansing and purifying us from the hold that those things have on us. And if we don't resist God's judgment, but like Noah, we prepare for it and we welcome it, we can actually relent with a holy sense of submission to God reordering our lives, a holy submission to God ordering our lives. I'm not saying that this is easy or comfortable, but I am saying that God's discipline will produce virtue. It will produce uh, proven character in your life. That's Peter and James and all kinds of different places in scripture. The things that we go through as discipline will actually shape us to become more whole human beings purify us and cleanse us from the inside out. And that's exactly what God's doing through the flood. He's also doing it on personal levels in our lives as well. So what I wanted to do is just very quickly before we end is um, talk about some ways that we can actually prepare for and be able to embrace the cleansing work of God in our lives. If Noah is unique in his generation and the natural way is to go our own way and to find good and evil for ourselves, then we need help rewiring and reshaping us to be more like Noah in this sense. So here's a few recommendations, a few practices that you can try. The first one is this, uh, practice daily prayers of submission. Now, um, every day we, we, we practice our prayers of thanksgiving. In the morning, hopefully, the first thing you do when you wake up, rather than going to a phone, is to give your like, attention to God and thank him. We also intercede for our friends and our family members and all of that. But I think as a part of our daily prayers, we also ought to be praying prayers of submission, which is just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, this is what I want you to do for me, yet not my will, yours be done. That's the prayer of submission. Second, I think we also need to practice confessing our sins to our community. This is where everybody really tightens up. And I completely understand why. We're a very individualistic society. On top of that, we project an image into the world. We project a reputation in the world that we want to be um, like maintained or held up or whatever. But the reality is that each and every one of us um, still have areas of our discipleship that are not like fully following Jesus yet. We still have room to grow. I certainly still have room to grow. And there's a, an awareness and a sense of accountability that comes when we have the courage to speak up to our close group of friends, the people who love us, the people who we love, and we actually confess our sins to them. And what I've seen personally, anecdotally, as a pastor, watching people get all worked up and tied into knots about potentially maybe sharing their sins with a brother or a sister, I have realized that after we actually work up the courage to do it, that people are always surprised at how much love they receive from their friend, how accepted they actually are, and how helpful it was for those things that are in the darkness to come out into the light. So I happen to have a working theory that, that honestly, our, our, our hiding from our sin and hiding our sin from others is actually one of the ways the enemy uses to conspire against our thriving in our discipleship to Jesus. And there's something that comes when we're able uh, to profess and even confess our sins to our community. Next, pr the prayers of examine. Prayers of Examine. This is a, a part of the Catholic tradition that I love. I think it's fantastic. It's from St. Ignatius. And essentially, the Prayer of Examine is a daily prayer at the end of every day where you reflect on the last 24 hours. Notice your emotions. Notice what God has done. Notice uh, what is wrong with your life. 
and, and then being attentive to how God wants to affect change and how God wants to reform you. So it's just a daily awareness of those things and putting it into practice. This is like the, like the prayer uh, of the psalmist who says, search my heart, God, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The prayer of examine seeks to practice that scripture on the daily basis. And then fourthly, I think um, actively replace your own ideas with God ideas. Actively replace your own ideas with God's ideas. I, I think we do this through reading the scripture. Listening to, reading the scripture. Sure, listen to good sermons. Sure, pick up a good book from time to time. But definitely be in the scriptures as much as humanly possible. See, Noah knew that the cultural tide was pulling him away from God's wisdom and God's truth. And he's going to be tempted, just like all of us, to go our own way instead of the Lord's way. However, what Noah does that others do not do is immerse himself in instead the wisdom and the instruction of the Lord. And that's what we want for ourselves. We want to be immersed in the truth of scripture um, so that our, our ideas are being replaced actively by God's. Okay, that was a lot of stuff. But I just want to end with one final thought. I said at the beginning, it's important we pay attention uh, to the language of the scripture and what's actually going on here. And as you look at uh, Genesis chapter eight, for example, you see a couple of really important key words. Like for example, Genesis 8.1. It says, God remembered Noah and the wild animals, the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth and then the waters receded, right? So the blowing wind is the Hebrew word ruach. And if you've been around, you know that means the wind, energy, or breath. You also know that that's the word that is often used to describe God's Holy Spirit. So the Hebrew Bible, ruach, is the word used to de de depict God and his presence. And then also, there's reference to the dove. The dove is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Check this out in verse 10 and 11. It says that, there was a, uh, that Noah sent out a dove, and when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf, and then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. So, so, so right within this sort of non-ordered and partially still disordered world, God's spirit is still present. See, beginning, um, the, 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 he's, he's present and he's beginning the work of recreation, establishing order and potential to thrive and all of that. So in your season of disillusionment or sorrow or disappointment, God is still present in all of that. And the exercise, the practice is about paying attention and learning to spot and see where God is at work in our lives that does not feel that way. So this is how God deals with disorder and chaos. He's present. He's present. And he's invested and he's committed to making things right. He, that's is what God is up to. And then finally, God blesses Noah and his family. So Noah and his family, they get to be a part of God's recreation. They get to be primary actors in the new beginning. Why? Well, because they're humble before God. They trust his word and they carefully follow his instruction. So this is the message for us, is, is to be like Noah and his family, humble before God, trusting in God's word, and carefully following his instruction. Now, it's interesting, though, because the flood plays a big, uh, is emblematic and is a pattern that's repeated throughout Scripture. And ultimately, what I believe is that the flood is merely a signpost that's pointing towards God's ultimate redemption and God's ultimate recreating work. For example, check out 
Mark 1, where we see the life and the ministry of Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So notice the waters and notice the dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. So out of the waters, the Spirit is descending and remaining on Jesus. So in other words, the, the, the signpost from the flood is saying, hey, pay attention to this Jesus character because he is bringing redemption. He is bringing salvation. And there is more judgment because there's more evil and there's, and, and there's, and there's more chaos and disorder. But for those who believe, this Jesus character is actually taking our place in judgment. Notice the, the insane reversal. Rather than us receiving the judgment for our chaos and our disorder, it's actually the opposite. The hero figure, Jesus, is taking upon himself our judgment, taking our place in judgment. And because of that, he's able to offer us forgiveness, and he's able to offer us a new beginning in his family. So this is how we end. We end by paying attention to the reality of this ultimate promise of Jesus, that he is able to not just... Um, satisfy God's judgment, but to actually bring a whole new beginning. So yes, the, the flood represents the ending of a, of a civilization, the ending of a generation, but it actually represents the rebirth of a new one. It's ordered, reordered, recreated under God and his wisdom. So what we need to pay attention to is where is God in all of this? And what we also need to pay attention to is how is he recreating? How is he restoring how is he remaking, reordering things in our lives so that it's more like him and it's more like his kingdom? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for your great power. God, thank you that you're not aloof to our trouble. You're not shrugging your shoulders at our pain. You're not trying to minimize the effects of evil. You know full well the effects of evil. And maybe, maybe you're here and you just feel that the effects of evil like deeply in your, in your life right now. The hope of the scripture is that, that God isn't going to turn a blind eye to that. He's going to bring his justice. He's going to bring his hope to it all. He's going to make things right. And he's actually capable of doing that. He's actually the one who's able to make wise judgments. And so we respond to you, God. We respond to you not as one who, who, who would ever challenge your judgment. Who would ever decide that, you know what, our wisdom is better. But actually we, we have a, a holy submission to you. A recognition that we don't have the, all the pieces of the puzzle figured out. We actually need you to step in and make wise judgments for us, on our behalf, for the sake of victims, for the sake of those who are hurting. We need you to make wise judgments. So we turn to you for that, and we also turn to you, Jesus. The one who didn't just like bring judgment, but took our place in judgment. So that we do not have to linger on. We do not have to continue down this treacherous path of disobedience and rebellion. But we actually 
have the way back to Eden opened up for us. We're able to experience your forgiveness. So if anyone here just needs to experience the forgiveness of God today, please don't hear the shame or judgment. Actually hear the opposite of that. Hear Jesus saying, hey, come here. The invitation is to receive forgiveness. The invitation is, hey, I already went through judgment for you on your behalf, so you get to be forgiven. And also the invitation is to join God in his recreative work. How is God recreating in your life? How is God bringing order where there used to be disorder and non-order? And how can you welcome that and embrace that as God's people? So Jesus, we love you. We want to say we're grateful for the work that you've done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the team is going to lead us in, in a worship as response. And also during the same time, we're going to take the bread and the cup together. So when, you, when you're ready, come forward, grab the bread and cup, and then we'll take it together here in a little bit. But let's give God praise and honor and glory.